When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this bonus episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. As the news came in yesterday on Friday, August 28th, that Japan's longest serving premier, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, was stepping down due to health concerns. We thought there was no better time to bring you a podcast on the life and legacy of one of the country's most formative figures. In this episode, we were joined by Tobias Harris, author of the new book, The Iconoclast, Shinzo Abe and the New Japan. And he spoke to the BBC's Regini Vadianathan all about Abe's tumultuous career from his ambitious economic programme, Abenomics, to his geopolitical relationships with the likes of China and the United States, to what the future holds for the country in the post-Abe era. So it's a really fascinating conversation and it was recorded on Wednesday, August 26th, just two days before Abe stepped down and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Regini Vaithyanathan, BBC correspondent and broadcaster. Welcome to this podcast. I'm here with Tobias Harris, who's a renowned researcher of Japanese politics and the author of a new book, The Iconoclast. It's a biography of Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The book looks at his meteoric rise and stunning fall, his remarkable comeback and his unlikely emergence as a global statesman, laying the groundwork for Japan's survival in a turbulent century. Well, a very warm welcome to you, Tobias. Hi, Virginie. Happy to join you. Well, first of all, it's quite a book about quite a politician, the longest serving prime minister in Japan. You're an expert in East Asian politics. What drew you to write this book in the first place? I've always been fascinated by Abe's story and his first premiership actually basically coincided with the start of my career as a Japanese politics watcher. So I watched this new, young, at least young for Japanese politics, uh, politician rise to the premiership suddenly. You know, he took power with something like 70% approval, and then he absolutely cratered. And, and I had kind of, to some extent, a front row seat. Maybe not a front row seat, but I was in the room. I was working for a Japanese lawmaker at the time in his office, 
an opposition lawmaker even more even better in some ways to watch it because I was watching the opposition rise and watch Abe uh, lose public support, struggle with scandals, then lead his party to a defeat unlike it had ever experienced before, and then about six weeks after that, I you know watched him resign, and so I was watching. Uh, as a, a staff member for a Japanese lawmaker, and then I was also blogging through it all and, and writing about Japanese politics sort of from this fly-on-the-wall kind of position. Abe is strongly associated you know, with that part of my career, obviously. But then watching him come back, I mean, we anyone watching Japanese politics for you know the, the years after he resigned, it was such a spectacular collapse. And there's not really a lot of precedent for someone being forced out of office like that in Japanese politics and then finding a way back into power five years later. It was stunning. It was unusual. And he's just an unusual politician in so many ways. His family legacy uh, is almost without parallel. I mean, Japan has a lot of hereditary politicians, but none with quite the pedigree, both intellectually and just uh, in terms of the prominence of his forebears as any other. And so he's just he, he stands out as an unusual figure. Let's start with his family then, I suppose. I mean, I'm just looking at uh, the inside of the book. There's a lovely photo that you've got there of a young Abe. I wonder how you uh, you got that from the internet, did you? Or did you have to find uh, work hard to find that one? It's a great picture. It's basically Abe with his maternal grandfather. It says he was the fifth of 10 children born to a minor prefectural official and sake brewer. Um, but he also came from political stock as well, didn't he, Tobias? Tell us more about his uh, family dynasty. I mean, Abe was the, the second son of, you know, of, a, of a prominent LDP politician. Yeah, but his grandfather, uh, both of his grandfathers were from what used to be called the Choshu Domain before the Meiji Restoration and is now Yamaguchi Prefecture. So it's a part of Japan at the very western tip of Honshu, the main island of Japan, that basically has been the cradle of prime ministers. I mean, Abe is the latest in a very long line of politicians who have come from this part of Japan. It was the domain that basically made the major Meiji Restoration that modernized Japan. It produced uh, a, a number of the early leaders, the military leaders, the political leaders, and they basically played a central role in forging the modern country, the country that would fend off the Western empires and then uh, go down the dark path of imperialism itself. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of history in his sort of family, you know, the, the family line is not just his family, it's linked to this idea of people from this part of Japan um, have a reputation to live up to as, as the leaders of the nation, the people thinking about Japan's future and Japan's place in a dangerous world. And so that's, that's part of the inheritance he got. And more specifically, so his maternal grandfather, uh, Kishi Nabusuke, uh, so he came from, you know, somewhat downward mobile family, and, you know, his father being a sake brewer and, and, um, but his family, you know, the, the broader family looked at Kishi. They saw a lot of promise. They sent him to the best schools in Japan at the time. They sent him to what was then Tokyo Imperial Uni University, is now just Tokyo University. And he was on a fast track bureaucratic career as an economic planner and did a stint in Manchuria when it was a Japanese you know, quasi colony dependency and then was part of the government that declared war on the United States. As a result, was indicted as a war criminal by the U.S. occupation after the war, and then was released several years after that when the U.S. realized that it needed committed anti-communists, many of whom had served during the wartime governments, to help rebuild Japan as a firm U.S. ally as the Cold War began. And then, of course, Kishi had his own meteoric rise after you know, really falling into to the abyss, you know, after being in prison for several years. Very quickly after the war, uh, after the occupation ended, 
rose to the premiership within five years, uh, really wanted to build a strong, independent Japan again that would be a great power in its own right, but allied to the United States this time. Almost succeeded in that, but then was driven from power through massive protests. And so that goal, that idea of a strong, independent Japan was passed on from Kishi to his grandson. His grandson basically grew up around him, grew up at his feet. And to the extent that Abe has core political beliefs, it's that. I mean, that is that is really where Abe's identity, the kernel, the fundamental kernel of Abe's political identity comes from. And tell us, you know, how that ended up shaping today's Prime Minister Abe. Are there any stories that you've written about in his formative years that perhaps shaped that? The story that Abe, I think, has told most often, and he writes about it in his books, he's talked about it in speeches, is you know when these protests were happening in 1960 against uh, a revision of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, ironically, one that was intended to, to take the 1951 U.S.-Japan Treaty and make, or 1952 Treaty and make it a little more equal, the protests were all around Kishi's private home. And during those days, Abe was five years old, and he and his older brother were brought to spend time with their grandfather to kind of cheer up his spirits. And, you know, Abe writes about, you know, seeing the crowds, you know, shouting at his grandfather's house and, and hearing the shouts and hearing the noise and sort of the visceral experience. You can imagine being five years old and wondering what's going on, you know, seeing your grandfather, who's this kindly figure. And, and I mean, when I was looking for photos to include in the book, I found a number, you know, there are a number of photos of Abe as a young child, you know, being carried by his grandfather or walking alongside his grandfather. He really spent a lot of time with him. And so you can imagine, you know, seeing, you know, these crowds shouting angrily, you know, curses at, at your grandfather. And then you're seeing your kindly grandfather and, um, and, and then sort of being drawn sympathetically, you know, and, and rejecting, uh, the forces that are, are, you know, shouting these terrible things or what looked, you know, as a five-year-old terrible things at your grandfather. And so I think there was this, this attraction um, and this desire to defend his grandfather and also his father to a certain extent too, who was a conservative politician in his own right. And um, you know, we can, if we want, we can discuss some of the differences, but I, I mean, I think uh, you know, almost like a pre-political response to his grandfather. And then when he becomes a lawmaker in the 1990s, you know, I think there's a much more intellectual process of reading his grandfather's memoirs, really understanding what his, politi- his grandfather's political legacy was, and then making that essential to his political identity. So there's this early identity formation of, you know, as the grandson admiring his grandfather and, and wanting to defend his grandfather, and then filling in some of the intellectual pieces later. And, you know, you write about that in the book. I mean, this is all about this political family. I mean, in a way, it's not just about Shinzo Abe. It's about the whole family and how they've shaped the Japan of today. You know, you, you have a line in the book here which says, when while Shinzo spent his days at play, his grandfather was struggling to remake Japan. And that's where, you know, I, I get this question now. I've gotten it uh, several times about the title. And everyone thinks, well, Abe is the ultimate establishment politician, the grandson of a prime minister, the son of a foreign minister. You know, how could you call him an iconoclast? And the important thing to understand about the Kishi Abe dynasty is that it existed in a very uncomfortable position with the post-war establishment and the post-war status quo. You know, and the fact is that they were they were sort of the loyal opposition within that status quo. I mean, Kishi was marginalized at the moment that the central decisions to make post-war Japan were made by uh, Prime Minister Yoshida and, and some of his followers. You know, and that was Japan would be lightly armed. It would be firmly allied to the United States. It would not necessarily be a strong military great power in its own right. It would accept a um, 
subordinate role in the the free world, quote unquote. And that is not the vision that Kishi wanted for Japan. And so basically he spent the rest of his career, both during his premiership and then the decades afterwards when he was still a lawmaker, trying to undo that. I mean, and and central to that was revising Japan's constitution, uh, which was adopted when he was sitting uh, you know, in the in prison as a war as an accused war criminal, and the most famous portion of that being Article Nine, where Japan you know renounces the use of force as an instrument of politics. You know that is the central kind of pillar that you know, Kishi was aimed at. You know, he wanted to take that out. He wanted to remove uh, that plank because that was you know around everything else. There was this you know, this constrained existence that post war Japan had. That was what he wanted to undo. And you know that is what was bequeathed to Abe, and that's why, yes, he, he ostensibly looks like an establishment figure, but the fact is he was very uncomfortable with the, what the post-war Japanese establishment was committed to. I was interested, actually. I was going to move on, but I, 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 this, this particular line in your book interested me too in terms of the, the rule of din- dynastic politics in the country. It's not the only political dynasty you write, but you say that um, for an entire decade, every Japanese prime minister was a dynastic politician, apart from Koizumi. Yeah, how much do you think that that has shaped the way that um, the traditions have, have continued in terms of the, the family? Well, and actually, Koizumi was a dynastic politician as well. Well, it's just that his forebearers hadn't been prime minister, but he still actually inherited his seat from a father and a grandfather. So you have politics as a family business in some ways as the dominant model, certainly within within the Liberal Democratic Party, you know, Abe's long ruling party. I mean, that basically that coming from a political dynasty has been a shortcut to being a leading figure in the party. It is, you know, it is it allows you to get a jump, a head start. Uh, you enter politics with you know basically a base of support there you know in existence for you enabling you to win election after election because the LDP traditionally has decided its cabinet ministers based on the number of times you win elections and so if you inherit a seat and it's a safe seat and you're able to keep winning and keep winning and keep winning and you don't have to devote as much attention to keep winning that seat that frees up a lot of time and money and attention to becoming a power in your own right as you enter politics and as you uh, you build your career and so you know Abe is, is only the most prominent example of that but he really is far from alone, and I think the the other way that Abe uh, is set apart is that you know because Kishi is this enormous intellectual presence and you know the godfather of a particular strain of Japanese right wing thinking, he he inherited this intellectual package in a way that not every other uh, hereditary politician. Did I mean you know if, you know it's one thing to inherit a seat from you know kind of a middling lawmaker who had a successful career uh, but wasn't you know wasn't this giant of the post-war era Abe has this huge uh, legacy to live up to in a way that most other hereditary politicians do not. Yeah, so the point you're making there that actually you know it it's it's a son or a grandson of a prime minister, so they're linked to to the biggest office in the land. Although, as you say, Koizumi was also related to uh, to lawmakers. Um, but, but I think what's interesting about Abe is, despite having um, that political dynasty behind him, his first term in office, if we move on um, from from his youth now and uh, him in politics, his first term in office ended after a year in two thousand and seven. That's right. And it was, I mean, of course, he, you know, comes, he takes power in 2006. He had basically been blessed by Koizumi, who had been pretty popular and, and 
at that point had been the longest serving Japanese prime minister in 20 years after a pretty turbulent decade. And there was this great hope. He was the first prime minister born after 1945. He was the youngest uh, prime minister Japan had had since 1945. And so there was this hope that, okay, this is uh, the new promise. We have generational change. Uh, you had Koizumi as a, as a politician who promised to upend the old ways of doing politics. And I think some of that uh, reformism rubbed off on Abe. And the fact is, is that Abe wasn't nearly ready to live up to that uh, to, to the expectations that he faced. Uh, he he was deeply inexperienced uh, and and really had been rushed into jobs way ahead way ahead of schedule and way ahead of his I think preparedness to wield those jobs and hadn't actually performed terribly well in in any of the the jobs he had been given both secretary general of the Liber- liberal democratic party and then also chief cabinet secretary uh, which is you know, sort of the main um, traffic cop so to speak of the of the Japanese government um, and that was the year leading up to his election as prime minister. And, and by that point, even, he, it was clear that he was the front runner to replace Koizumi. And the problem that Abe faced is, so not only was he still pretty green and, and not really ready for the job of prime minister, he also inherited a party that was actually pretty divided after the Koizumi years. I mean, Koizumi was a aggressively divisive politician who uh, you know, declared war on, on members of his own party. And you know the, the highlight of that was uh, this battle over privatizing the Postal Service in 2005 that ended up with you know, dozens of lawmakers being kicked out of the LDP. And Abe inherited this party, inherited this party that was riven uh, by these divisions over you know, how it should approach um, this, Japan's fiscal future, you know, still questions about the Constitution and national defense and the relationship with the United States versus the relationship with China and some of Japan's neighbors. And Abe didn't really have a way of resolving those divisions. I mean, he tried to please everyone during his, his first premiership and basically he ended up pleasing no one and then wasn't helped by a tendency uh, to say the wrong thing while trying to please everyone. Abe has Koizumi's blessing. You know, he's going to inherit this enormous majority that Koizumi won in 2005. Surely he's going to keep that up. And that wasn't who Abe was. That wasn't the kind of politician he was. That wasn't where his priorities were. He wasn't going to be a rock star. He was, you know, he's a bit more of a plotter. I mean, he's um, not necessarily the most charismatic speaker. I think he has a hard time persuading people uh, who don't already share his views. And, and those shortcomings, I think, became immediately apparent and really crippled his government pretty soon after he took power. He came to power again after his uh, first term in office ended after a year, as we discussed. What did he change? What did he do differently the second time around? I think even just going through the experience of having been propelled to the premiership and then having failed in such a spectacular way, I think he had the humility to recognize that, that he took office way too, way too early and that he needed to reflect and really needed to think if he was going to have a second act, you know, what that second act would be, what, what had gone wrong. And he learned a few lessons. One was personnel choices, that he in 2006, really ended up surrounding himself, particularly, you know, in the prime minister's office with a lot of people who were sort of like him, young, not necessarily the most experienced, kind of ideological true believers, 
uh, not necessarily able to craft a message that over you know that sort of worked with Abe's qualities and his shortcomings and and kind of compensated for who he was. You know that he wasn't going to be Koizumi. That they had to find a different way of approaching the press. They had to find a different way of crafting a message. They had to learn how to kind of hear voters uh, and the kind of things voters were interested in. And so, you know, that was, you had this five-year period, I think, of reflection on Abe's part. He learned, I, I think, that his one of his greatest shortcomings was that he never really had a lot of expertise or under, deep understanding of economic policy and, and therefore couldn't really speak to what voters cared about most. Um, so he had to, I, I think he had to learn how to not abandon his kind of ideological priorities, you know, the kind of things he inherited from his grandfather, but at least you know, know when to push with those with those issues and know when you had to speak to voters about what they cared about most. You know, are there jobs? Is the economy growing? Is there too much inequality, which was a major concern after the Koizumi years? And so, I mean, he, he put a lot of work into studying those issues. A lot of what happened with his comeback, though, a lot of it was just luck. If not luck, it was definitely circumstance. It definitely... I mean, Abe is, is ironically a testament to the value of a two-party democratic system where you have alternation of ruling parties, where one party loses an election and has to go into the wilderness and rethink itself, update its ideas, update its, its manifesto. And the LDP loses in 2009. It's adrift for a couple of years. And in you know during that time, the, Democratics, the Democratic Party of Japan is in power and they don't perform very well. So the LDP starts seeing its opportunity. And in the meantime, Abe is watching all of this happen. And he reinvents himself really as, as one of the LDP's most outspoken critics of the Democratic Party of Japan, you know, saying that uh, they're betraying Japan, they're not defending Japan from an increasingly assertive China, which is a factor after the global financial crisis in 2008. They're, they're letting Japan's economy uh, tank again after you had a good run of growth in the years leading up to the global financial crisis. And, you know, Abe is going to be the guy to bring Japan back. And he reinvents himself as someone who really thinks hard about economic policy, that he's going to be the guy who's going to stand up to China, and he's going to fix relations with the United States, which is another thing that the Democrats mess up in power. And, you know, he, he becomes this really strident advocate for this national revitalization program. So let's talk about the economy. You've mentioned his economic policy and how that transformed his popularity. Um, it was known as Arbonomics to many people. What exactly was Arbonomics and why was it so popular? So what Abe did with Arbonomics was he took some ideas that have been floating around uh, in Japan for a while, but kind of on the margins, even though they were mainstream outside of Japan. And that is that Japan, the Bank of Japan needed to be much more aggressive uh, in uh, trying to get money into the economy that you know you had you know deflation uh, had persisted for so long and people weren't spending and prices weren't rising and that the bank of japan needed to do much more to put money into people's hands and to get people investing and to get people spending and that would get inflation up and it would get people feeling more optimistic about the future and and you know that it was as much a, a psychological trick as anything else and these ideas had been floating around, but no one had seriously pursued them, and no one had really decided decided that what had to be done politically was to pressure the bank the Bank of Japan to do more and so he picked up these ideas you know from from these relatively marginalized figures, decided to make them his own uh was 
convinced of their importance that this is what had to be done. And the other thing that was part of it was that, so you were going to need a big burst of monetary stimulus, and then you were also going to need simultaneously a big burst of fiscal stimulus. You had to show that we are going to throw as much money to the economy as we can to get over the hurdle of deflation. You know, we would do whatever it takes to get it done. And then on the heels of that burst of growth, that burst of inflation, you know, he would use his political power to push through some of the structural reforms to Japan's economy that needed to be done, to change how the labor market worked, to change the agricultural sector, to really uh, get capital and uh, human capital moving into growth sectors and, and to find new engines of growth for Japan in the 21st century. And so that was that was basically what became called the three arrows of Abenomics. You do monetary policy, you do fiscal policy, and then you'd follow the, all that up with structural reform. And that was the burst of enthusiasm even before he was elected as prime minister. So he becomes leader of the LDP again, surprisingly, in September of 2012. And he starts laying out this agenda, laying out this program. And the markets get really excited because they're like, OK, the LDP, uh, the DPJ is looking like they're going to lose. Here comes Abe. He's got this new agenda. He's going to push it through the stock market starts rising, the yen starts dropping, which is one of the biggest problems that Abe had with how the Democrats governed uh, governed the economy, that the yen had been too strong, and so Japan's exporters were ailing. And, and people start believing in Abenomics, just sort of the promise of Abenomics for months before he becomes prime minister, then becomes prime minister and within the first weeks, really starts pushing on all of these fronts. And so that that's really where, where the Abenomics story begins. And how does that affect Japan's standing in the world? It basically showed that after you know, some pretty turbulent years under, under the Democrats, starting with the confusion uh, and some tensions with the United States when they first took power, and then uh, the the challenges it faced after the March 2011 triple disasters, when you had you know, a giant earthquake, tsunami, and then the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant meltdown, you know, which really upended the Democratic-led government, you know, that finally Japan would have strong, stable, confident leaders, uh, you know, a government that clearly articulated what it was going to do and it was going to follow through on those goals, that it was going to, you know, be strong, it would stand up to China, it would be allied to the United States, it would, you know, articulate a clear direction in foreign policy, that Japan, you know, and, and Abe made all of this, uh, you know, delivered this message both domestically and globally in the first months. You know, he famously went to Washington, D.C. in February 2013, like two months after he returned to power and said to an audience at the think tank CSIS, I am back and so Japan shall be. You know, this idea that Abe's Abe's personal recovery, this you know, his rising from you know the ashes of two thousand seven to become prime minister again, that that would be a metaphor for Japan. And actually if we talk about his recent visits to the United States as well, he's actually forged uh, quite a firm friendship with uh, President Trump, um, one of the early visitors to uh, his golf courses, I believe. I think we've seen pictures of them playing golf together. Why was that such a strategic decision to do that? Well, you have, we have to step back and, and realize it's not just a, a, an investment in a relationship with Trump. I mean, from the very beginning, you know, Abe was invested in the idea that as far as Japan's foreign policy in the 21st century goes, there was no alternative to a strong, close relationship with the United States. And a lot of what he did both during the Obama years and the Trump years was working to ensure that the United States was committed politically, economically, and militarily to the Asia Pacific and to the the U.S.-Japan alliance. And so, 
he worked really hard to find a way to build a relationship with Obama, who is a very different type of president than the current occupant of the Oval Office. A lot of people in Obama's administration looked at Abe when he came back, and they did not see that as a good thing. They saw a man who had a history of exacerbating tensions with South Korea, which is another U.S. ally, um, by flirting with what you might call historical revisionism. He had a tendency to inflame tensions with China for the same reason. And for a lot of people in the Obama White House, I think they looked at at Abe and they saw someone who's going to complicate their their efforts to uh, have an Asia-Pacific strategy, what they called the rebalance to Asia. You're an expert in the region and you know we've seen as i said before all those pictures of the two men uh, mr trump and mr um, abe playing golf together there was that moment where i think shinzo abe fell into a bunker as well once didn't he when they were playing golf together the more you see those two men together how much does this antagonize china and other east asian players i, I think china has been very clear that it views relationships like the u.s japan alliance as cold war relics and you know, would prefer to see Asia not have these U.S. Um, security alliances, and so anything that strengthens those alliances is, you know, I, I, you know, Beijing is not going to look at them favorably. But you know, what's been, been interesting about Trump years for Abe is that he, I mean, he's actually walked a tightrope. That you know, he of course he has invested in a close relationship with Trump personally, and making sure that the U.S.-Japan economic and security relationships. Uh, continue to be deepened or at least maintained. He also, right up until the COVID nineteen pandemic, was invested in a you know a, a durable rapprochement with China. His government was committed to at least strengthening the economic relationship and doing whatever they could to deepen economic ties. Because I think there was a recognition in both Beijing and Tokyo that both countries benefited from uh, the open liberal rules-based trading system. Uh, it had worked in their favor. You know, they're both big exporters. They need access to markets unimpeded. They want integration to continue. And so I think there was an understanding that they had interest and it was worth working together on that. And so Abe actually managed to watch a tight ro- walk a tightrope for several years, uh, you know, between this relationship with Trump, but also uh, kind of ever closer negotiations with, uh, with China now, after the pandemic and after kind of how China has stepped up its pressure on Hong Kong, it's been more active in the East China Sea over the last several months, uh, you know, that opportunity might have passed. And you know, there's now tremendous pressure on Abe from within the LDP to take a harder line on China. You know, there was supposed to be a visit to Japan by Xi Jinping um, in April or, or in the springtime that is now indefinitely postponed. You know, as a result of what's happened over the last several months. And so, th- so that window might be lost. But really, for the first several years, you saw this balance. So talking about what's happened in the, the past few months, of course, it, coronavirus has struck a blow to the Tokyo Olympics. They were meant to be happening about now, weren't they? And of course, they haven't taken place. How has that affected Abe and, of course, Japan as a whole. I mean, you even talk about uh, Abe as ten, a 10-year-old Abe uh, in October 64 when the Olympics came to Tokyo. Then you say he was swept up in the pageantry in a, of an event that would change the face of the capital and show the world a rebuilt, peaceful Japan in the early stages of an economic miracle. I mean, we're decades on now. Uh, we're supposed to have the 2020 Olympics, likely to be next year, but we're still not sure. How is Abe handling that? From pretty much... The moment he returned to power in 
uh, late 2012. I mean, to- Tokyo had been working on an Olympic bid, um, had bid previously and, and lost its bid um, for the 2016 Games. And, you know, this was something that was important to Abe and I think very early on recognized that it could be a target for Japan to work for, that it could shape his whole agenda, that 2020 would become the year that his government would work for, and all reforms would be geared to making uh, Japan uh, ready to show itself anew on the stage as a as a country that had regained its confidence, that had grown, uh, that was open to the world in ways that it hadn't been before, You know, much in the same way that the 1964 Olympics were intended to showcase a rebuilt Japan. And so I think he had conceived of that from early on. In terms of the impact of the postponement of the 2020 Olympics, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, had you said at the start of this year, uh, before all of this happened, well, that the Olympics were going to be postponed and Abe's not going to get this showcase, it would be hard to conceive of it as anything but a tremendous blow uh, to Abe and to Abe's standing. And that, oh, if this were to happen, like, surely um, it would be the end of his premiership. I mean, and I think the reality is that by the time the decision to postpone was made, I mean, I think the Japanese public accepted that, okay, we're not realistically given what's happening and, you know, they just declared it a pandemic. It's spreading, you know, everywhere. It's spreading in Europe. It's spreading in the United States. Realistically, we are not going to be able to do this. Opinion polls showed the public strongly behind delaying the games. Domestically, I don't think that actually ended up being much of a problem for Abe. I mean, I just, I think everyone just recognized that realistically it wasn't going to happen. But it, it is in some ways symptomatic of what's happened to Abe this year. You know, that he had spent the better part of a decade, um, you know, the economy grew. It's the second longest stretch of growth that Japan has had since 1945. You know, you had record-setting numbers of tourists coming to Japan in the years before. You know, Japan just looked uh, like it would be sort of a stronger, confident country hosting the Olympics. And what's happened with the pandemic is, is that it has revealed that a lot of the benefits of the Abe years you know, were, were short-lived, that this was not the long-term structural transformation of Japan that Abe had hoped for. And the, the reality is, is that when Abe leaves power, whether in September 2021, when his term ends, or sooner than that, that his successors are going to deal with a lot of the same structural problems that, that they faced before. There's still going to be an enormously large debt that the government's going to have to figure out how to deal with. You still have a very grim demographic outlook. And Japan is still live, living in a pretty turbulent, unstable region. You know, you know China, it's not really quite clear what China intends. And, and that this is going to shape every, uh, this, you know, every decision his successors has to make. So you mentioned his election next year, is he likely to stand for re-election and is he likely to win? So right now he's actually term limited. The LDP's rules, which were actually changed in 2018 to allow him to run for a third term, currently state that a leader can serve for three consecutive three-year terms. And so Abe is coming to the end of his term unless the LDP changes changes its rules. There was an expectation that if Trump were re-elected as the U.S. president, the LDP might change its rules to allow Abe to serve a third term because the party would, would believe that only Abe would be able to deal with Trump and that you wouldn't want to trust any other leader with that relationship. After what's happened this year, where Abe's ap- approval ratings have now been negative for roughly three months in the midst of, of what looks like a pretty serious health crisis, and there's, I think, a, a, lar- a sense among the public at large that it's just time for new leadership. 
I don't think the LDP is going to change its rules again. So we are now at a point, as we as we speak, where he is basically a lame duck. News has broken this week that Abe's been spending uh, several hours in hospital due to um, poor health, ironically coincides with his achievement of becoming uh, the nation's longest serving prime minister. Um, He's not going to uh, serve uh, another election because he can't next year. If he's likely to step down before that point, um, any idea of who might succeed him? Well, it really depends on the circumstances of his resignation, uh, but if he were to leave suddenly, if we saw you know a repeat of um, of two thousand and seven when he resigned basically without giving any warning because of ill health as well because he has this chronic ulcerative colitis i mean and we don 't know if that 's what 's going on now. Uh, we might find out more from the prime minister, and you know that might clarify things. but if we were to resign suddenly. The most likely outcome is that with only a year left in his term as LDP leader, the LDP would likely move quickly to find a caretaker, uh, including you know, some possibilities include um, fin- Finance Minister Asotaro, who had been uh, Prime Minister uh, about a decade ago and eagerly wants to step in again, or Chief Cabinet Secretary Suga Yoshihide, who has been Abe's, basically Abe's right-hand man since 2012. He was instrumental in getting Abe elected as LDP leader again in 2012. So they're likely to take Japan in the same direction? And I think the expectation is that if you have a resignation coming in a moment where Japan is in one of its worst recessions ever and is still fighting a pandemic, you're gonna, they're, they're going to want continuity and a swift decision and not a drawn-out leadership fight. And so this year, there's been lots of talk about you know, what the post-Abe era looks like, and there's a number of different visions and different candidates who put uh, their names forward. That kind of succession fight ought to be played out in a mass public election. And the LDP's rules stipulate that the leader should be elected in a public election. But it also stipulates that if there's a, a surprise vacancy, the party can move quickly to pick a leader to fill that vacancy. And, and I think that if they're trying to pick a leader on short notice at a time when there is a pandemic and that might affect people's willingness to vote, they're not going to want to go through this whole public campaign. And, and I think the party w- would likely just pick a leader amongst its lawmakers and party officials as quickly as possible, have that official that leader serve for the next year. And then when Abe's term was supposed to end, then you would have this more open fight for a vision of post-Abe Japan. Now, I wanted to ask you about this line that you wrote in the book before we go. You said that his legacy will be shaped by missed opportunities and postponed decisions. I was intrigued by what you thought those missed opportunities and postponed decisions were in particular. The thing that Abe delivered to Japan more than anything else was stability. You had a prime minister who won in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2016, 2017, 2019. I mean, to have that sort of run of success for a prime minister and to have stable control of both houses at the Diet from 2013 onward was an unusual situation. And a prime minister who had very robust approval ratings for almost his entire tenure. I mean, there were moments where he dipped, but he always had a tendency to bounce back. I mean, that is an unusual situation for Japan to have a government that that was that stable. And it looks even more unusual when you look at Japan's peers in the democratic world over the same stretch of time. I mean, Abe almost was unparalleled in his political strength and stability. And so when you you look at it from both of those perspectives, uh, you would hope that 
given the challenges that Japan faced, given global challenges during this period, that he would use that political strength to really move the agenda, both on economic reform domestically, and and then actually globally, Abe seemed more poised than anyone to move the needle on climate change. And the reality is, is that he didn't. And so when you think about what his legacy is going to be in the future, that he made some changes to Japan's relationship with the United States, or, you know, that he pushed for the constitution, that might not look as important as what did he do you know, to deal with climate change? What did he do you know, to deal with Japan's carbon emissions? What did he do to push for strong, a stronger global accord, uh, you know, particularly because he was stable and strong and other democratic leaders were? Now, of course, there are other leaders with much worse reputations on climate. I mean, Abe has certainly said the right things on the issue, but should it have been a higher priority for the duration of his government? I think you can make the case even now that it should be. You know, Japan is already seeing the results of climate change. I mean, it has had extraordinary heat waves over the last several years. It has massive rainstorms over the last several years. You know, there is a consensus that, that Japan is not going to escape climate change, you know, just like every other country is, is going to be vulnerable in, in different ways. And, and, you know, and so I think you know, what his priorities were, what he could have used his power for and decided not to, is I think going to matter as much as what he decided to use it for. The book's called The Iconoclast. Um, why did you decide to call the book this and why does Shinzo Abe merit that title? I chose it because I think Abe stands out you know, from the moment he entered politics in the early 1990s. You know, His goal has been overturning this post-war order. He was a child of it, yes, but he also looked at the compromises that Japan made after 1945. And as he said very clearly in when he became prime minister in 2006, his goal is leaving behind post-war regimes. He wanted to change uh, how Japan was governed. He wanted to change Japan's place in the world. He wanted to change Japan's economy. And, and that I mean, it was fundamental to his identity as a politician. So despite being a hereditary politician, because he had an uncomfortable relationship with the, with the post-war regime, I think it's entirely appropriate to call him an iconoclast, someone who wants to uproot these existing institutions. I think that's a fitting moment to end this discussion. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, really interesting to hear from you and also interesting to read the book, Tobias. It certainly taught me a lot about uh, Japanese politics that I was not aware of uh, and indeed about Shinzo Abe. So thanks very much for joining us on this Intelligence Squared podcast uh, and listeners can find more about the book, The Iconoclast, if you go to the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Listener.